I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness. For those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you. The fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. today's episode, I am talking with Belinda Bowman, who has just recently come out with her new book, Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. Belinda is the founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating with women in the world's most worst conflict zones. She's also the founder and the visionary behind Hashtag Silence Is Not Spiritual, which was a campaign that launched about a year ago, calling churches to break the silence on violence against women. Belinda is a mother of two sons, one of whom has also just started his first year of college. We have a lot in common. Uh, She and I first met at Brave On Conference, which is put on by Red Tent Living Online Magazine, which she and I both are regular contributors to. I can't wait for you to hear my conversation with Belinda. But before I go to that, I wanted to share with you the lost story of this episode. It is about a woman who I just learned about two weeks ago on spring break. I took my girls to Washington, D.C., and one day we went to the home of George and Martha Washington, Mount Vernon, and we did a special Women of Mount Vernon tour. I loved it, but the most fascinating part of the tour was learning about how the house has been preserved. So George died, I don't know, end of the 1700s and told Martha to free all of his slaves, which she did. And as a result, right, there was no one to work the 4,000 acres and four farms of the property. So slowly, as it's passed through their um, inheritance, um, the land is unable to be farmed and taken care of, and it goes into disrepair. So by 1853, it's falling apart. And one night, a socialite from South Carolina is traveling along the Potomac River and sees the home in the moonlight and declares to her daughter, Anne Pamela Cunningham, if the men of America have seen fit to allow the home of its most respected hero to go to ruin, why can't the women of America band together to save it? And so Anne Pamela Cunningham launches a campaign to raise the money to buy and save Mount Vernon. She, in South Carolina, writes in the newspaper to the ladies of the South and starts raising money. She appeals to women in 30 states to serve as the original board of directors, and they form the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, and they raise the money and they buy the property. What's incredibly cool is that they are still the ones that run Mount Vernon today. It is still entirely a female board of directors, and those women in 1853 become the 
first nationally organized group of women in America, and they launched the historical preservation movement in our country. Is that not amazing? Well, the connection for me is that Belinda has also band together with incredible women to do beautiful, meaningful, purposeful things both here and around the world. And so I can't, I can't wait for you to hear some of her stories and to read more of that in her book, Brave Souls. Um, you'll get to hear about the women of Washington, D.C. in the travel guide that I release on that city. Uh, I'm going to be releasing a fierce and lovely travel guide about uh, a curated day in a city that you know well through the eyes of women. How did women help shape its history, and you can receive that free each month in your inbox by subscribing to my e-letter uh, at bethbruno.org. You'll learn more about that at the end of this show. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Belinda. Hello, Belinda. Welcome to the show. Hi, Beth. It's so good to talk to you. You as well. Thanks for coming on. I'm so excited for you and excited for the release of your book, Brave Souls. How are you feeling? <laughs> um, well, my dear friend, Kathy Kang, always talks about this imposter syndrome that so many of us that write books feel. And it was slightly vague up until about one week ago when I was like, oh my gosh, I feel tricked. They told me to write the book as if there was a person across the table from me, a cup of coffee, sunlight streaming through the window. Just talk to the person across the table from you. And then you talk to your marketing team and they say, no, we're going to put it out in the world. And lots of people hopefully will read this. And right. It's a thing when you start to think about lots of people reading your book. So, right, whose faces you'll never see. You'll yes. never have coffee with every single reader. I, I wish I could. Thing. I yes. can't. Yes. No, you can't. No, you can't. The words are, are going out there at this point, whether yes. you want them to or not. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. And all kinds of, then all kinds of, um, ambivalence. I love that word these days where I feel two things at once constantly. The absolute sheer adrenaline um, that can result in both terror and joy at exactly the same time. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing feeling. <laughs> yes. Over the exact same thing that's happening. Yes. Yes. Welcome to being an author. Yes. Yes. Well, you are far more than an author. Really, this book is just the culmination of years of experience and um, just you're, you're doing so many things. And so I kind of wanted to start, if you don't mind, if you could give us somewhat of a timeline of your life of, of like the last few decades and kind of locate us in in kind of the storyline of your life, because we dive right into the book and we're in the Congo with you. And at some points, you know, towards the end of the book, we're in Syria and other times we're on top of Mount Kilimanjaro. And now I know you're like in Michigan. So do you mind just kind of sketching out uh, like the timeline a little bit? Do you mind? That's a great question. That is a fantastic question. It'll actually be like therapy for me as well. <laughs> sometimes I forget where I am. And um, I have that I have that waking up in the middle of the night sometimes and go, oh my gosh, I'm not in a hotel room. 
oh, right, I'm home. That's where I am. That's crazy. So, yes, yes. so this was a valid idea. question. It is an absolutely valid question. I, um, I was born in uh, Wisconsin, of all places, to um, a very hardworking factory worker and a waitress. I was the first one in my family to graduate from high school. Um, and my parents were, um, they were just good, good down home people. They, um, they really wanted me to go to college and I had a perchant for gymnastics. So I, um, got a gymnastics scholarship to Valparaiso university and inside of the first, uh, I would say three months of practice, I blew out my knee, a complete blowout and dropped out of college. Oh my goodness. Um, Yeah, it was, um, it was at once again, the best thing that ever happened to me and the worst thing that ever happened to me. I had like most sports oriented folk. um, I had come to define myself as a gymnast primarily. Um, but God had a lot more for me than, than just um, my physical body, than my mm. physicality and my sport. So I um, took a year off and in that year um, reconnected with um, the guy that I dated in high school, whose name was Stephen Bowman. I fell in love with this guy when I was 15. Oh, I in didn't Wisconsin. know you guys were high school sweethearts. We were, we were more than that, Beth. We actually were born in the same hometown, in the same hospital, eight hours apart. Oh, that's crazy. My, our, my kids start to make the gagging noise about this time in the story when they're like, oh my gosh, it's so sappy. But we did fall in love when we were 15. He had to get, you know, the goober out of him though. And he took one of my best friends to prom when we were in high school. So that was enough to end, you know, empathy or no empathy, man. I That was enough to end the relationship. So when I was taking my year off from college, um, we reconnected. Um, and both of us, uh, had an experience with God at that time. And I liked him a whole lot better with God in his life than with God out of his life. So it was, he, he's a, he's a great man. And, uh, probably right now my favorite author and speaker ever of all times. So Stephen became my husband. We, um, three years into our marriage, I was teaching and he teaching, uh, fifth grade and he was working, um, at an international, international business firm. We were, uh, you know, double income, no kids and, thoroughly involved in our church and missions committees and Bible studies and the Easter cantata and Stephen was helping lead worship and all this stuff. And I remember asking him every, every time the seasons changed, uh, whether we could go, um, I would call it, let's go do our bit for the world. Right. Mm. 
And he said, you know, we're doing so much. Maybe we should just hold off. And in the end, after three years, you can accomplish a lot if you just keep the same messaging going. (laughs) So he came home, uh, surprised me, and came home one day with an application to um, Mercy Ships. Now, maybe some of your listeners have heard of Mercy Ships before. It's the largest non-governmental hospital ship organization, um, and they uh, have a fleet of ships that travel into uh, travel into areas where access to medical care is difficult, um, particularly surgeries that focus on cataract, glaucoma, fistula, and um, tumor um, tumor removal and repair. So I did the happy dance of joy. We said yes and took, uh, by all miracles, our parents blessed us. And both of our jobs gave us a six-month leave of absence, which is unheard of in what we were doing. We left for Mercy Ships uh, in 1994 and uh, with a six-month intention of staying and we stayed for almost pretty close to eight years um, <laughs> working, working for the organization. That was where Stephen and I um, met some of the bravest souls uh, we, we've ever met in our life. We've, we were exposed to people living in living and um, not just living, but thriving. Um, in their souls, even if they weren't thriving in their bodies Mm. yet. Um, In post-conflict and current conflict nations, we lived in places and visited places like Guinea, uh, Benin. Uh, We were in in post-apartheid South Africa for a year, Madagascar, and, um, oh gosh, many, many other places beyond that. It was the best, absolutely hands down, the best theological training I could have ever gotten. And so when Stephen and I returned to give birth to our first son, Joshua, our church um, ordained both of us um, in a ceremony together, uh, giving uh, respect to our season of navigating uh, discipleship as well as our own theologies and the cultural um, implications of living in the places that we had just lived in. Right. So, so basically I, honoring the, the theological education you received outside of the classroom and naming it time. as such. Yeah. Wasn't that just, it was so far, it was so um, open-minded and so deeply meaningful for Stephen and I to be able to be ordained together mm-hmm. and to be um, and to be able to then go forward and minister together in that capacity. But it was like a we had won the lottery because we also had our firstborn son at that time. And uh, so this is the year 2000, which uh, puts me in uh, that young children, those young children years. And I gave birth to Caleb, uh, Joshua's brother, pretty quickly after Joshua. 
about 18 months. And uh, Stephen was working on um, two degrees at the time. He was finishing his um, second master's degree at Johns Hopkins in um, international development studies. Uh, I was teaching while I had young young kiddos and it was I was teaching middle school at the time Mm. and in the book I refer to this (laughs) I refer to my years as a middle school teacher as genuinely one of my first bona fide war zones (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah so even though I had been in and out of conflict zones for many years before that um encountering the uh the native middle schooler in their natural habitat was uh, was definitely um something to be navigated and it taught me so much about paying attention to empathy mm. and that was where it was during these years of teaching eighth grade and then sixth grade that i my curiosity was piqued about the concept of empathy as it exists scientifically, um, as it exists in our brains and in our bodies, but even more so as it exists in our spirits, in our souls. And so I started asking some questions about that. It was pretty quickly after uh after that, I graduated with a, a master's degree in curriculum development, and Stephen and I took our three and five year old and hit the road for um, post genocide Rwanda, wow. <laughs> where we lived. Um, I think pretty much like you lived in Turkey um, as as a young family mm-hmm. doing life in a place where that wasn't. Um, always comfortable, but always, uh, always had our heart. So we were super excited about our, um, about our time there. Um, it was during that time though, um, our season in Rwanda that I started to talk to women, interview women per se, about their experience of life. Um, which means their education, but also their experience of politics, their experience of policy, their experience of family and community inside of conflict. The problem with my season in Rwanda was it wasn't, even though it wasn't my first rodeo, I um wasn't i was only paying attention to what was immediately in front of me and did not realize that the genocide itself had hopped a border and existed in full blown uh pain and suffering in the democratic republic of congo i mean there were whispers and i certainly read the news and my husband was the Um, was the country director for World Relief, uh, was the regional director for World Relief, um, uh, Rwanda, Congo, South Sudan. But it still was really foreign to me. So 
we came home um, about two and a half years into our stay in Rwanda. And your, your listeners, if they pick up the book, they'll understand why we came home. Our um, youngest son, Caleb, um, started to experience um, intense anxiety manifestations that were became diagnosed as um, obsessive compulsive disorder um, that was associated with strep. So whenever Caleb was had strep present in his streptococcal infection present in his body, he would um, manifest pretty intense obsessive compulsive disorder um, behaviors. And we needed help. I needed help. Mm -hmm. So we came home and World Relief made um, place for us back in Baltimore, which was hilarious because the conversation between me and my mom. Now, I'm um, I'm from Jewish roots. And so I'm certainly not making fun at all of my mom when I talked, when I used this voice. But she said, Belinda. Really? You're moving to Rwanda? Really? Where are my grandchildren going to grow up? You can't take them away from me. It's dangerous there. Right? Right. Two years later, while we're moving to Baltimore, you'll never guess what the conversation was, girl. Oh, I'm sure it sounded almost identical. (laughs) Really? You're kidding. Where are my grandchildren going to grow up? It's dangerous there. (laughs) Said, okay, well, looks like wherever I live, I'll just have to make you part of it, Mom. We're good. So, so we took ourselves to Baltimore, lived there for, uh, for actually for another eight years. Um, Stephen served as the president of World Relief at that time, and World Relief made opportunity for me to be able to take a great group of women. Uh, to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the reason this happened was because of a little article my husband threw on my Mother's Day breakfast tray uh, about a year before. Now, most moms get, you know, uh, Hallmark cards, or or even the better yet, you know, handmade cards that have color crayons, and you know, we love you, mom. Mine, right next to my toast, was a little article that said, "The Democratic Republic of the Congo, the world's worst place to be a mother." And there it was. I sobbed through my coffee. I drew in my breath. Uh, in gasps as I read about the life that women just one country over from where I had lived were living. So what do you do? You, you know, when there's, when something stirs in your soul, right? When, when we as women are moved, uh, and realize that maybe there's something that I can do about this. Um, We do something. Mm -hmm. So I got the, I don't know, the smartest, the bravest, the, I don't know, maybe the craziest people that I could think of together. Um, And we journeyed to the Congo. And about a year after that little article sat on my mother's territory, 
I sat in a cinder block church um, listening to, well, no, bearing witness mm. to the stories of women who live in an active conflict zone and experience life and the violence of um, and the violence of war every day. I was um, I was changed during that time, and uh, the change was marked. The see, I have um, I have gone back. Oh gosh, many many times since then, and it was out of that experience of bearing witness to the stories of brave soul women um, that One Million Thumbprints was birthed. One Million Thumbprints is um, a a movement of peacemakers. I think that's the best way to call best thing to call us. We advocate with women for women in the world's worst conflict zones. Mm. We choose to not only hear the stories of women, but to lean into them. And with their permission to help the world, uh, to help the world bear witness to their stories. Mm. And so that places me talking to you On the timeline, um, Brave Souls, the the book itself, took me about three years to write. Um, it's been in a number of different iterations, and I have wrestled um, with my own retelling of my story, of the stories of the women that you that are in, that are are um, spoken of in the book, and my own. Um, my own reckoning with this idea of of two souls um, cro- uh, at a crossroads with each other, um, this place where um, where you and I meet, um, where our souls intersect. And the choice at the of that intersection to either listen and love, or to um, or to ignore and turn away. I love how you talk about empathy as a spiritual discipline, which in itself implies something we have to practice, something we benefit from, something we experience growth. When we do, it's, you know, we come to know God better. I've never heard of empathy described as a spiritual discipline in that way. So I, I love how you bring that whole new perspective. Um, and I love how you actually give us some really practical things to consider in growing that spiritual discipline in our own lives. Because, I mean, one could think as they read your your stories of braving Rwanda and the Congo and Syria that it's, <laughs> you know, it requires far more than, than perhaps the ordinary um, woman's life. And yet mm. you land with such 
tangibles. And so I, I have three favorites of your oh, kind awesome. of action items. And I love how you name them even. The one is to shape shift. And the second was to become a reverse engineer. And then the third was make yourself uncomfortable. So can you just real quickly touch on those three in particular? Those those seem brilliant and so easy if we just think about it and have the lens through which to view our conversations, you know, in that way. That's awesome. Yes. So I think, I think what opened empathy as a spiritual discipline up to me was um, Dallas Willard's definition of a spiritual discipline, which is activities undertaken to make us capable of receiving more of God's life and power. Hmm. And I thought, if if empathy is my ability um, at whatever level I have it at, because empathy, no one gets a pass for empathy. Everybody has this ability in them, actually, scientifically, from birth. And spiritually, if you look at the scriptures, um, from creation. So if, if, it's, if it's the ability to be able to uh, know someone, to be able to care about them, and to be able to use both knowing and caring for action, if, those, if that's the, the working definition of empathy, then putting that into practice on a daily basis should, if we think about it, yield some pretty dang extraordinary results. Um, It seems to me that uh, empathy as a spiritual discipline is our ability to pursue um, within our power so that we can do something outside of our power. I love that feeling of, of there's something bigger inside of us than we look like on the outside, Mm. kind of like, you know, for Doctor Who fans, the TARDIS or for C.S. Lewis fans, you know, the, the uh, stable at the, in the last battle. So those, um, those moments of, hey, we're bigger on the inside than we are on the outside. And if we pursue, um, if we pursue knowing and caring to the point of action, Around anybody and everybody we can conf- we uh, find ourselves in proximity with during the day, around any news that we hear, around any current events that we are flummoxed by or or frustrated by, then we as practicers of empathy should really be the ones changing the problems going on in this world. Mm-hmm. So the moment of when I like the shape-shifting one that you picked, it's, um, I, I, I kind of liken it to, hey, the next time you're standing in a coffee line and it's like three, four, five deep, um, take a minute and identify one of the people in front of you or behind you and study them. You know, with all with all attentiveness, listen to them and what they're saying. Um, pay attention to the tilt of their head or the tone of their voice, or if they're not talking, 
um, what what are they what are they communicating in the air around them? Because everybody is everybody's communicating constantly, and we have to learn to listen whether or not they're talking. Mm. So um, once you've done that, just kind of take a minute to imagine you've slipped out of your own skin and into theirs. Like close your eyes and imagine what their eyes are seeing at that moment. What are their ears hearing? What, what smells are they smelling? Are they, are they feeling anxious? Are they feeling bored? It's just such, now you're going to be, you're going to be guessing at many of these things, but it's such a great experience to be able to, uh, Take a perspective of somebody by actually trying to see through their eyes or trying to hear through their ears. Um, And it actually, even though it's a silly little um, experience that you can do in a coffee line, uh, it is really powerful practice when you are sitting across the table from somebody who may be upset with you. Or you're trying to negotiate um, the greater good for your children or um, something um, difficult is happening between you and your significant other and you do not get them. You don't get what's happening. You don't get what they're thinking. If you've got this practice under your belt, you may be able to just slide into their skin for a minute and see or hear or feel something that they're seeing, hearing, and feeling that, that is necessary to you being able to uh, move the conversation forward uh, in, a, in a much more uh, practical, much more progressive way. I mean, it sounds kind of like building a muscle that, you know, if we view empathy as that, that we have to work it and build it to make it stronger. Absolutely. You do. It, and like I said, um, everybody's got muscles. We all like to say, oh, you know, I'm not a gym kind of person or yeah, I go to the gym every day, but actually everybody has muscles and we are responsible for whether or not we are, um, using those muscles for not only our own health, but the health of the community around us. Mm-hmm. Which that's a great parallel of kind of what I was talking about, that you're leading trips to the Congo and Syria, and it might look like you're some sort of weightlifter, you know, some serious, built, muscular, empathetic person. Um, But that's not to say that we don't, we're not all on that continuum, that we don't all have have a calling to be empathetic, no matter where we are or with whomever we are. Absolutely. And the Beth, I was really challenged by that because meeting um, the women that I did in the Congo, I think so much of the world has said that these are these women are victims. They are um, poor. They are in in the case of the woman that is, was, was the one that actually changed my life, Esperance, 
they're illiterate. And it's such a wrong-headed way to view, um, to view the lives of these women. They were, um, they were certainly um, suffering. And they were certainly victimized, but they were not victims. Mm -hmm. They were survivors. And as survivors, they were living in their community and being examples of empathy to each other. But not only that, I mean, it blew my mind. They weren't just examples of empathy, listening to each other's stories, helping each other, uh, knowing each other's circumstances, and caring about each other's circumstances. They were doing that for the community around them, for the orphans that they encountered, for the um, family members that they still had to care for, even though they were survivors. And then what blew my mind completely was many of them, as believers in Christ, were then extending that empathy to their perpetrators, which was, um, it took me years and years to understand that. It was for me that moment of, I don't get the privilege to just pick and choose what suffering or what joy of somebody else I want to understand. I have to, as um, one who practices empathy, take a whole person and their whole life as one and understand both their suffering and their joy at the same time. And empathy is a help in that. These women practiced empathetic listening, leaning into each other. They practiced perspective taking where they would um, not, only, um, not only listen to each other, but they would, uh, they would try to place themselves. I mean, everybody says the, the common uh, phrase in each other's shoes, but they were doing more than that. They were like, placing themselves in each other's skins and saying, okay, she's not communicating right now, or she's not, um, she's not able to uh, advocate for herself. What would she want right now? And they were doing that for each other. So they were, they were showing me how to take someone's perspective. They were showing me how to listen uh, truly listen into each other's lives. And then using those really um, powerful disciplines, they were making peace for not only themselves, but their communities around them. And it was through the power of empathy. I loved some of those stories specifically. I loved Elsie's story. Um, and I mean, talk about forgiving her per perpetrators. Um, but I, I loved you wrote that you le learning from Elsie that forgiveness is more about the forgiver than the forgiven. It's much more about choices made and paths taken and actions executed than moral sounding pleas and platitudes. When real forgiveness is granted, it's steeped in the hard work of knowing the God who forgives and the one we are forgiving even if that person is a court-certified traitor. 
And then just going on to hear about how Elsie's choice to forgive transformed her whole community. It did. Uh, I just, and you know, listeners will have to pick up your book and read to find out the, <laughs> the rest of the story. You know, the backstory behind that really quickly is that I knew Elsie for, for two years and we had had many good times together before she actually told that whole story to me. Mm. And so being patient, being disciplined, a disciplined listener and a disciplined, um, uh, a disciplined believer in empathy can yield some of the most rich and deep lessons um, this world has to offer. The benefits way of empathy way outweigh the the burden of it. It's not easy, but it is always worth it. Mm. Well, and I like how in the, one of your appendices gives a test that someone could take in terms of how, how good of a listener are you, right? And you don't necessarily score it or give, you know, grades or any, it's, it's kind of a barometer. And I think the actual questions of how are you doing in this way or this way or this way as a listener, as an empathetic listener, are telling and kind of instructive and ways to set goals personally in terms of, okay, I really should improve in that particular way or in this particular way. So I love that. And I love the, the action steps like shape shifter and just how you take some of these big, big concepts and heartbreaking um, stories and bring it right down into our real world and Mm. the real ways that we are, Really all called and all privileged to be people full of empathy and that doing so is what makes us all brave souls. Um, Amen. Yeah. So you've done a beautiful job at that, Belinda, and I'm so excited that it is released into the world. It's Brave Souls Experiencing Ooh. the Audacious Power of Empathy uh, by Ivy Press. And mm. here's the exciting thing. I love IVP. They are giving... Um, one of our listeners, a free copy of your book. And I'll, I'll explain how they can win that uh, in the in the outro here in a minute. But I just wanted to thank you, Belinda. Thanks for um, writing this and offering it to us all. And thanks for coming on the Fierce and Lovely podcast today. Thank you, Beth, for being one of those brave souls in my life. You are, you are truly fierce and lovely, my friend. Nothing like receiving encouragement on my own podcast. How fun is that? Well, I just want to congratulate Belinda on the release of her first book, Brave Souls. And I want to encourage you all to pick up a copy. And for one of you lucky listeners, you will win a copy of your own from Ivy Press. All I want you to do is go leave a review and I will randomly select one of you reviewers this week and IVP will mail the book straight to you. I'll reach out to you and get your address. So go ahead and do that on iTunes. Would so appreciate it. And for the rest of you who are also fierce and lovely women, I want to remind you that I will be releasing a monthly fierce and lovely travel guide curating a day in a city uh, through the lens of the women who have shaped it. And so if you want one of those for free in your inbox each month, you need to subscribe 
on my website at bethbruno.org. And I will be sending out the first one this Friday, April 5th. So go ahead and do that. Thanks for listening today. This is Beth Bruno, and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast.